0: Today we're in 2 Samuel chapter number 18. Do you remember last Sunday we walked meticulously and painfully through the the sordid details of David's great sin? Uh, We talked about the fact that God is honest about his heroes and that David with all of the wonderful virtues and character traits that we've been celebrating in his life, David was not a perfect man. He was a man like you and like me is imperfect. And so he was a sinner and he made some terrible mistakes and committed some grievous sins. We talked last week about his lusting after Bathsheba and the one night stand uh, that came out of that lusting. We talked about his cover-up and the murder of Uriah. But we also talked about David's heartfelt repentance, how that when confronted with his sin, He confessed and that he repented of his sins. And even in his repentance, as is often the case in our lives, God forgives us for our sin, but there are consequences to our actions. And Nathan spelled out five consequences. Do you remember them? We saw them last week in chapter 12. Do you want to turn back a few pages? 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 to 14, where David Uh, hears from Nathan five dire consequences that would occur as a result of his sin. Verse number 10, uh, Nathan says, the sword will never depart from your house. Verse number 11, he says, evil will rise up against you from within your own family. Verse 11, he says that David would lose his wives to another man. In verse number 14, he says that the enemies of the Lord would take this opportunity to blaspheme and to attack David. And then in verse number 14, he warns David that his unborn son, the child of that uh, relationship with Bathsheba, was going to be sick and was going to die. And those warnings were given in the time when, before the baby had been born and before um, all of these these, uh, consequences played out, And yet we're going to see in today's text, several of them actually come to pass. Look with me in chapter number 18, only one verse that we're reading today. 2 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 33. Look at it with me. The Bible says, and the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And as he went, this is what he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would God that I had died in your place. O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It is a tragic verse. It is quite certainly the lowest day in David's life, it is the lowest point in the biblical narrative about David's life. When the Bible says that the king was much moved, the word means that he was trembling. He was so overcome with grief that he was shaking violently. And that as he was climbing those steps, one one, uh, difficult uh, and labored step after the other, trembling as he goes, weeping along the way, O Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would to God that I would have died in your place. Now we know that it's in this moment that David has learned that his son Absalom has died in a battle. In fact, if you look in this same chapter, verses 14 and 15, uh, the general of David's army, whose name is Joab, Verse 14 says that he takes three darts, the King James says. These are javelins or spears. He takes three javelins and he pierces the the heart of Absalom. And then verse number 15 says that 10 young men who were the armor bearers of Joab, they encircled Absalom who was, as many of you know, who was tangled up in the branches of a great oak tree, his hair caught up in those branches. Literally, he's dangling helplessly. These ten men surround him and they take his life from him. And Absalom dies. And it's a tragedy. It is a tragedy in every sense of the word. But the truth is David lost his son in battle on this day, but David had lost his son many years before this. You see, the sad fact is that David's relationship with Absalom had been dead for over a decade. And today we're going to learn about that dysfunction in David's family. And we're going to learn from his mistakes. We're going to learn about how we can order our relationships in a way that will bring more joy and less pain. You know what? This will be helpful for all of us because... Every family, like David's family, every family knows pain. We all do. Can we be honest? Every family has their stuff, right? Every family has their brokenness. There are no perfect families because there are no perfect people. And by the way, this applies to church family as well. There are no perfect church families. Do you know why? Because there are no perfect people in church. Every family has their brokenness. We all have the difficulties that are caused by our own fallenness. And the reason is because family is all about relationship. It's all about how people relate together. And the truth is people are messy and we don't always do it well and we don't always manage those relationships correctly. So let's talk for just a second about how a family develops, right? No no new news here, but but a family develops when a man and a woman develop a relationship. Maybe they they begin to date and and they get married and they're having this relationship. And in the beginning, in those early days, it's just him and her. And in truth, it ought to be pretty simple. It's just two people relating with one another. But often that couple will then go on and have a child. And now you have three people in the relationship. You have husband relating to wife and wife relating to husband. And now parents relating to child and child relating to parents. And a third person in that relationship, well, it becomes a bit more complicated. And of course, very often, they will have a second child or a third child or even a fourth or fifth child. And as that family grows with every person added into that relationship, well, the relationship can get a bit more messy. Now you have children relating to parents, but children also relating to siblings. And then you have parents relating to one another, but parents relating to their children. Well, very often, we also know that Sometimes mom and dad get divorced and then perhaps one or both of them will remarry. And now you've added a a completely uh, additional uh, relational factor into the mix. Now we're dealing with past brokenness and hurt, uh, forgiveness or not. Suddenly, we're relating to stepmom and stepdad and stepson and stepdaughter and stepbrother and stepsister, and that blended family can sometimes add those even more difficult relationships. And then those children grow up. And guess what happens when children grow up? They're no longer toddlers and, and making toddler mistakes. Now they become adults and they start making adult decisions. And sometimes those adult decisions affect the family. And then those children get married. And when they get married, they bring in another relationship, right? Do you see where this is going? And so now we're dealing with with children and parents and siblings and stepchildren and stepbrothers and stepsisters. And and now we have son-in-law and daughter-in-law and mother-in-law and father-in-law. And you have in-laws and And all of these relationships just become more and more and more complex. And then those children have their own children. And so now there's grandchildren and grandparents and nieces and nephews, I could go on and on. But the point is obvious that as you add more and more people into a family, then the dynamics become more and more complex and more and more difficult. And very often they're messy and there's tension and there's strain and there's difficulty, and there's disappointment, and there's hurt, and there's, there's forgiveness or unforgiveness, and all of those things become a part of who we are. And so it's really no wonder, is it, that sometimes families end up rather like David's family, uh, filled with grief and loss and, uh, and dysfunction and regret and, and tears, and it's hurtful. All of us know this journey to one degree or another. Here's the thing. God has a better way. And we wanna ask the Lord today to teach us to walk in that better way. So let's talk about David's family and seek to learn some things for our own family. Would you write this down? We're gonna begin by looking at David's mistakes as a father. Now, I have to tell you that... I, I. I know that somewhere down the road, if God were to write another Bible, and I have no uh, you know, false ideas that I'd be included in it, but if by some chance I were, somebody could write about Jim's mistakes as a father. I get it. So I'm not, I'm not being too difficult on David. I'm just dealing with the text, okay? The Bible does tell us that David made some mistakes as a father. Now, as we're talking about David's mistakes as a father, we ought to begin by acknowledging the makeup of David's household. Now, let me just say this plainly, okay? David was a polygamist. Uh, David had at least four wives. There are four of his wives that are named in Scripture. In all likelihood, he had many more wives than uh, just the four that are named in the Bible. We also know that David had a number of, he had numerous Uh, what the Bible calls concubines. These are uh, wives to a lesser degree. They hold no family rank or position, no right uh, in that culture, Uh, but they were sexual partners with a man and would bear him oftentimes many, many children. We know that David had many children. 21 of David's children are named in Scripture. But again, in all likelihood, David had far more than 21 children. He likely had dozens more children than that. So it raises the question, how does God view this idea of men having multiple wives? Is God okay with, does God approve of polygamy? Well, to answer the question, you only need to go to God's original design for the human family, all the way back to Genesis chapter uh, number two and uh, one and two, where he creates the human family in the Garden of Eden, uh, in Adam and in Eve. And the Bible says that Adam was created. God made Eve from his rib. He brought the woman to the man and God said... Uh, that man should leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, one, singular, and they should be one flesh. So in God's original design, he designed man and woman for a monogamous and a lifelong relationship with one person. But we know that sin entered the garden in Genesis chapter number three. And sin not only defiled God's people, and it warped the image of God within us, but it also distorted God's ways. And that distortion and defiling comes in Genesis 3. And immediately in the next chapter, Genesis four nineteen, you have the very first case of polygamy where Lamech marries two wives. It didn't happen prior to that. It was the result of the distortion of the original plan and the will of God. And it just became worse from there until finally you see this really at its apex in Solomon, David's son, where the Bible says in 1 Kings 11, verse 3, that Solomon had, are you ready? 700 wives. And beyond the 700 wives, he had 300 concubines. And so literally Solomon fathered children with a 1,000 Different women. Now, clearly, this is not God's design. It's not His plan. It's not His ideal. God allowed it in those uh, in antiquity, but in redemption, in Christ, He calls us back to His original plan, right? Which is the whole point of redemption, that we would be called back to walk in God's original plan. And so, in Christ, He calls us to have one husband and to have one. Wife And so certainly uh, God does not approve of this uh, polygamous lifestyle. Well, nonetheless, David was a polygamous and he had many relationships with many women and produced many children. You can imagine the strain. You know, I was talking about all these relationships and how complex they are and, and the tension that it results. You can imagine all of these relationships, all of the strain that would be produced when you have Dozens of sons and daughters uh, fathered by one man uh, with at least a dozen women. You can imagine the jealousy and the tension and the envy and the abuse and the neglect and the scheming uh, that would come about in that kind of household. I mean, you would say in that kind of family, almost anything could happen. And you're right. Because in our text, it actually does happen. I want you to look at chapter number 13. Turn back with me as we consider David's mistakes as a father to 2 Samuel chapter 13. Look at verses 1 and 2. Verse 1 says, And it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, Loved her. You have three of David's children in verse number one. You have Absalom and Tamar, who are the son and daughter of David by one uh, woman, same mother. And then you have Amnon, who is the son of David by another woman. He is Absalom and Tamar's half brother. Verse number two says that Amnon, or verse one says Amnon loved uh, Tamar. Now the truth is Amnon lusted after Tamar. Verse 2 goes on to say Amnon was so vexed that he was sick for his sister Tamar for she was a virgin and Amnon thought that it was uh, impossible or hard for him to do anything to her in other words to have a relationship with her. Well, he is so fixated on her that the text tells us that he assaults her sexually. Skip down to verse number 11. Verse 11 says, when she had brought him a meal that he took hold of her and he said unto her, Amnon says to Tamar, come and lie with me, my sister. And she answered him and said, no, my brother, do not force me. No such thing ought to be done in Israel. Do not do this folly. Where shall I cause my shame to go? And as for you, you will be as one of the fools in Israel. Now I'm begging you, uh, speak to the king. He will not withhold me from you. Verse 14, howbeit he would not hearken unto her voice. Verse 14, but being stronger than she, he forced her and he lay with her. You know the word for that it's rape. Verse 15, Amnon then hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred wherewith he hated her was greater than the love wherewith he had loved her, and he said unto her, Arise and be gone. I mean, this is a horrible scene. It's an absolutely uh, wretched, vile, evil assault of Tamar. And I have to tell you that verses 18 down through verse 20 make it clear that she suffered as a result of this assault for the rest of her life. Do you know that after this passage, we never see Tamar on the pages of scripture again, ever. She never appears on the pages of scripture. She's taken into the home of her brother Absalom where she, where she lives with him and he cares for her for the rest of her life. She never marries. This is the end of any hope of a, of a life that would fill her with joy because of the evil deed of Amnon. We want to help her. You know, we, we, we want to come to her defense. We want to defend her. But the truth is she's broken by the sin of her stepbrother. And so David in this case is faced with a family crisis. A son has violated his step sister. It's created a horrible offense and it's a crisis within the family. And David as the father of the family must deal with the crisis. And I need to tell you that everything that David did in response was wrong. Every decision he made following this Was a mistake. Now, before we're too hard on David, can I ask you a question? Have you ever been faced with a family crisis and your response to the crisis was wrong? I have. Have you ever dealt with a situation that arose and you didn't create it and it was a difficult situation, but your response to it only made it worse? That's exactly what David did. Well, let's talk about his mistakes. Write it down. Here was his first mistake. David participated in what I call silent seething. Silent seething. Look at chapter 13 and verse number 21. Verse 21 says, but when King David heard of all these things. Stop right there. He heard what had happened. I don't know how long it took him to find out. Probably not long. Within a matter of hours, no doubt, certainly within a day or so, he began to realize something was wrong. Word came to him, somebody told him, and he heard of all these things. He heard that Amnon had deceived him. We didn't read it in the text, but Amnon pretended to be sick, and David came to see him, and Amnon lied to David and asked David to send Tamar to care for him. Amnon had played David for the fool. And David bore some guilt, no doubt, that it was his decision to send Tamar into Amnon's house. He knew that Amnon had deceived him and he had deceived Tamar pretending to be sick. He knew about the assault. He knew of Tamar's begging that Amnon would do no such thing and of Amnon's forcing her and assaulting her. And he also knew of Absalom's response of hatred. Because Absalom did from that day forward begin to hate Amnon. And David was aware of it. But Look what the Bible says. He knew these things, verse 21, and he was very angry. He was very angry, but he did nothing. In silence, he was just seething. Rather than going forward and embracing his responsibility to deal with the situation, he just closed up and began to be angry on the inside. And this silent seething went on, verse 23 tells us, for two years. For two years, he said nothing. Now, he could have done some things, right? He, he could have taken some steps, There was a Levitical law that spoke exactly to this situation. And there were steps that could have been taken. David could have done those things. He could have comforted Tamar. But there's no evidence that he did. He could have spoken to Absalom. But there's no evidence that he did that either. He was furious, but he did nothing. Silent seething in a family crisis is never a good choice. Second thing that David did that was a mistake was that he was distant and dismissive. He was distant and dismissive. Let me show you how that is true. Look at verse number 23. Chapter 13, verse 23, came to pass after two years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is beside Ephraim. And Absalom invited all of the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now uh, thy servant has sheep shearers. By the way, this shearing of the sheep every year was a celebratory kind of event. We're going to bring the sheep in. We'll bring the family together. We're going to shear them. We'll have a feast. This is what he's inviting them to. Verse 24, Let the king, I beseech thee, and his servants go with me. The king said to Absalom, No, my son, we're not going to go. We can't go and, and be in your, in your uh, party, in your festival. Uh, Verse number 25 says, and he pressed pressed him, howbeit David would not go. But he said, you go, you go do it. Verse 26, then Absalom said, well, if you're not going to go, I'm begging you, I pray thee, let my brother Amnon go with me. And the king knew better. He says in verse 26, why should he go? Why would you want Amnon to go with you? But Absalom pressed him. Come on, let him go. And so The king relents and Absalom invites Amnon and he goes with him. And the fact is Absalom hadn't spoken to Amnon in two years prior to this. He had been filled with hatred toward him and suddenly he's wanting him to go with him off to this uh, distant town and and be a part of a festival there or, or a feast as they shear the sheep. And David is so dismissive. I'm not going to go and no, Amnon's not going to go. And and, Well, okay, let him go. He just seems to be so dismissive of all that is taking place. He should have known what Absalom had in store. Rather than being a part of that, participating, embracing his responsibility, he says, yes, just let him go. You know, the Bible is clear that in this distant and dismissive attitude of David, it led to what happens next. In fact, what happens next was really inevitable. If you continue to read, the Bible says in verse number 28, that Absalom holding this feast and getting his brothers, including Amnon, there to the feast. Verse 28, Absalom commands his servants saying, you watch Amnon and when his heart is merry with wine... Then when I give you the signal, you smite him and kill him. Do not fear. uh, Do not fear. I have commanded you. Be courageous and be valiant. Verse twenty-nine. And so the servants of Absalom did unto Amnon as Absalom had commanded. They killed Amnon. And so what began as lust became assault and rape, became hatred and revenge, and ultimately now it became murder. Amnon is dead in verse number 29. And the Bible tells us then that Absalom flees as a fugitive. He's now a murderer and he flees as a fugitive to Gesher where he remains for three years. David's first two mistakes, he was silently seething and then he was distant from the situation and dismissive of his responsibility. Third mistake that David makes is that he was... Refusing, he refused to reach out to Absalom. You see this in chapter 13 beginning in verse number 38. Chapter 13 verse 38 says that Absalom went to Geshur and he was there for three years. Three years. Verse 39, and the soul of King David longed to go forth to Absalom. With the passing of time, David's heart is comforted about Amnon And his death, he begins to long for Absalom to return and yet he refuses to reach out to Absalom. He couldn't bring himself to do it. Too much water under the bridge. Too many things had happened. Too many sins had been committed against family members. Now Absalom is far away. The years have passed and David is content just to let things lie. And he refuses to reach out. It was a mistake. Fourth mistake that David made is that he kept Absalom at arm's length. He kept Absalom at arm's length. When you read from chapter 13 into chapter number 14, you'll discover that Joab gets involved. Joab is David's general, uh, one of his uh, most trusted counselors. And he gets involved and begins to work the situation to try to make it possible for Absalom to come back to Jerusalem. We won't read all of it or or get into the details. You can read it later. But Joab accomplishes uh, his mission. And it does, in fact, occur in verse 21 of chapter 14 that David gives the word. All right, bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. But look at verse number 22. It says, so Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king for bringing Absalom home. Joab said, today your servant knows that I found grace in your sight, my Lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab went to Gesher and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem. He brings him back finally after three years. But look at the next verse, verse 24. But the king said, let Absalom go into his own house and do not let him see my face. And so Absalom returned to his own house, and he did not see the king's face. Look at verse 28. And so Absalom dwelt for two full years in Jerusalem without seeing King David. I mean, it's just one mistake after another. He's angry and silent, then he's dismissive and disconnected and distant. Then when Absalom flees, years pass, and he refuses to reach out, and finally, when he does allow him to come back and be near David, David is still reminding him by his distance every single day that while he might be living near him, reconciliation has not occurred. I mean, literally, Absalom is so close to David in in chapter 14, but he is still so far away. We make this mistake sometimes where we, by our attitudes and our actions and our stiff-arming, We remind those family members with whom we have a difficult relationship that you might be in my proximity, but you are not in my fellowship. Well, he still kept him at arm's length. That's one final mistake that David makes. You'll see this in chapter 14 at the end of the chapter. It is that David finally reluctantly receives Absalom, but only under pressure. It's only when he really has no choice that he finally allows Absalom to see him. Look at chapter 14 and verse number 32. Middle of the verse, Absalom says to Joab, Why have I even come from Gesher? It had been good for me if I had not come, if I had still been there. Now let me see the king's face. And if there's iniquity in me, then let him kill me. So Joab came to the king and told him these words. And when he had called for Absalom, Absalom came in to the king and he bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Now I want you to think through the math. This is seven years after the rape of Tamar. It's five years after the murder of Amnon. It's two years after Absalom returned to Jerusalem. Finally, at the coercing of Absalom himself and at the coercing of Joab to David, finally, reluctantly, David allows Absalom back into the palace and he comes and bows down before King David and David gives him the kiss. Now the kiss is the sign of reconciliation. It's what you see in the book of Genesis when David I'm sorry, when Joseph kisses his brothers and is reconciled to them. This is the kiss of reconciliation, but it is reluctant reconciliation. And quite honestly, reluctant reconciliation is often not reconciliation at all. David made five tragic mistakes when facing a crisis. Now, we can do better than that. We don't have to make those same mistakes when our relationships in, in, in our families or any relationship is struggling. You know, we can respond differently than David did. Hey, don't be silent and don't remain angry. It doesn't mean that what has happened shouldn't make you angry. The Bible says in Ephesians four twenty six, be angry without sinning and don't let the, the sun go down on your wrath. Deal with your anger. Don't be distant and dismissive. You know, the Bible says in Matthew 5, Jesus said if you come to worship and you realize there's a broken relationship with someone, leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled to your brother and then come back and worship. Don't remain distant, but go and, and resolve the issue. Don't refuse to reach out, but be willing to reach out. Jesus taught us this, didn't he? By his own example and even in his teaching, Luke 15, 4, he gave us the parable of the lost sheep and he says the good shepherd will leave 99 in the fold to go and find that one wandering sheep. Be willing to reach out to the one that is distant from you and don't keep them at arm's distance. Ephesians 4, 32 says, forgive as you've been forgiven. And if you're keeping that arm stiff to keep them away, take it in, let it down, and be willing to allow God to bring reconciliation. These five major mistakes that David made, they sowed bitterness into the heart of Absalom. They sowed bitterness into that family relationship and it led to, this bitterness led to Absalom's Rebellion. Write that down. Let's talk about it as we move to, to wrap this up. We've learned about David's mistakes as a father, but those mistakes led to an outcome. And the outcome was Absalom's rebellion. At the end of chapter 14, finally, reluctantly, David uh, reconciles with Absalom and now supposedly back in the good graces of David, uh, Absalom begins to allow the bitter seeds that have been sown over the last seven years to begin to bear some evil fruit. Chapter 15, verses 2 through 6 tell us that Absalom steals the heart of the people of Israel. Look at it, verse 2. Chapter 15, verse 2 says, And Absalom rose up early, and he stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom would call them unto himself. He would say, where'd you come from? And they would say, well, I'm from this particular city. And Absalom would say to him, well, see, your matters are good and right, but the king has not designated anyone to see or to hear of your matters. He would go on to say, oh, that I were made a judge in the land. Then every man which had any suit or cause might come to me, and I would do him justice. Verse 5. And it was so that when any man would come near and bow down to Absalom, Absalom would put forth his hand, pick him up, and draw him close and kiss him. I mean, this, this is like a sleazy politician. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not all politicians are sleazy. There are statesmen, and I'm grateful for godly Christian men and women who serve in government, but there are some sleazy politicians. This is like a sleazy politician. He positions himself so that everybody coming to see the king gets diverted and he gets to see them first. He says, you've got a good case and the king isn't listening. He says, oh, if I were judge, I would listen. And every time they begin to bow in reverence to him, he says, no, 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 come. And he embraces them and gives them a kiss. Verse number six, this is the way. On this manner, Absalom uh, did to all of Israel, uh, all those who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men Of Israel. He steals their hearts. Chapter 15, verses 10 through 12 tell us that he forms a conspiracy. Do you see it? Verse number 10, Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, When you hear the sound of the trumpet, you begin to say and spread the word Absalom is king now, he's reigning in Hebron. Verse number 12, the middle of the verse, the conspiracy was strong and the people were increasing with Absalom. He forms a conspiracy. He leads a military coup. And by the time you come to verse number 13, the Bible says there was a messenger that came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are after Absalom. And David said unto all the servants which were with him in Jerusalem, arise, let us run for our lives. For we shall not else escape from Absalom, make speed and depart he will overtake us suddenly and bring evil upon us. And he will smite the city with the edge of the sword. Literally in the beginning of chapter 15, all of the bitterness that was born out of David's mishandling of his family crisis leads to the overthrow of his kingdom by his own son. So by the time you come to chapter 15, the end of the chapter, verse number 37... David has now left the palace. He's left Jerusalem, weeping as he goes. In verse 37, and Absalom comes into Jerusalem and the takeover is complete. How you write this relational principle down, this parenting principle, but it's also just a family relationship principle or, or a relationship principle for any of our relationships. It is that neglected relationships result in rebellion. It's really true. When we neglect the relationships in our lives, the result will be rebellion. It's exactly what happened with with Absalom. Now, before we move on to just kind of finish where we began in chapter number 18, let me show you one last thing. It's a bit of an aside, but I think it's important to note. Notice chapter 16, verse number 15. When Absalom comes into Jerusalem and he takes over the throne, he's now uh, ousted his own father from the throne. Listen to what verse 15 says. And Absalom and all the people of the men of Israel came to Jerusalem. And notice who's with him. And Ahithophel came with him. Do you remember Ahithophel? I told you last Sunday who Ahithophel was. Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba and since all of those many years ago when Bathsheba was taken into David's bedroom Ahithophel has been seething himself when Absalom raises up a rebellion a conspiracy against his father Ahithophel is the first to join that conspiracy it is now his opportunity to take revenge for his granddaughter And in fact, the text says in verse number 20, chapter 16, verse 20, that Absalom said to Ahithophel, give counsel, what shall I do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, listen to this, verse 21, Ahithophel said to Absalom, go in unto your father's concubines who is left here to keep the house. And all Israel shall hear that you are abhorred of your father and then shall the hands of all that are with thee be strong. And so they spread a tent upon the top of David's house the roof of David's house. And Absalom, at the advice of Ahithophel, went in unto his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Do you see what Ahithophel just did? In the very place where David lusted after Ahithophel's granddaughter, Ahithophel said, let's set up a tent in that place and you violate his concubines. Oh, loved ones, bitterness And rage and unforgiveness leads to sins that we could never imagine that we would commit. Well, finally, not only do you see David's mistakes in this passage and you see Absalom's rebellion that resulted, but it all leads to where we began, chapter number 18, with David's grief. David's deep, gut-level body shaking, heaving sobs of grief. In chapter 18, war breaks out between the army of Absalom and those few men loyal to David. The Bible tells us in chapter 18, verse number 5, that just before the battle begins, David gives instruction to his generals. Look at it, chapter 18, verse 5. The king commanded Joab and Abishai and Ittai saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man, even with Absalom. Do You hear that? It's amazing. It really is amazing that after all that's happened, after all the years that have passed, after all the pain, all the grief, all the distance, all the anger, all the seething, all the bitterness, and now even after the conspiracy of Absalom, and even after Absalom is seeking the the life of his father. David, from somewhere deep in his heart, still loves his boy. He says, don't hurt Absalom. When you go to fight, you care for, you watch out for, you be gentle with my son. Well, you know the story, right? We read it earlier. Verse number 14, Joab discovers that Absalom has gotten hung up in an oak tree by this long flowing hair that he has. He's all entangled. He's defenseless. Joab sends three javelins into his chest and then then he's surrounded. Absalom is surrounded by ten of Joab's strongest men and they utterly kill Absalom. Which all brings us to where we began, verse 33. David's weeping, the lowest point in his life. Oh, My son, my son, Absalom, my son. I wish I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now, the truth is, we don't know if these events might have happened even if David had made fewer mistakes. These events could have happened if David had done everything right. Sometimes, We don't make so many mistakes. Sometimes we do do things better than David did them. And still rebellion happens. Still relationships break. We don't know if this would have happened if David had been wiser. But here's what we can agree on. That had David been wiser in handling this family relationship, then even in the loss of his son, his own guilt and responsibility and surely his grieving would have been less. And so while we can't always control the outcomes of family relationships or of any relationship, we can, by God's grace, move wisely through those relationships, seek to honor the Lord in our responses when the crises arise. And then, if the rebellion and the brokenness and the tension arises and the relationship struggles, at least we can say, by God's grace, I've done the best that I can do. So my challenge to you is do what you can to heal relationships and do it now. Don't silently seethe. Don't be distant and dismissive. Don't pull away, but try to lean in. Don't, don't refuse to engage, but get involved as you can. And in a humble and a redemptive way, Spirit, seek for the glory of God and the joy of those in the relationship. Seek to be a healer and not a divider. May God help us to do this. And I believe that all of our relationships will be better.